Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Beyond the Buoy. My name is Captain Zach, and in today's episode, I speak with Ethan Estes, a marine scientist, artist, and designer whose art is meant to help inspire those about the issues facing our Earth's oceans. Ethan first came to me via the Ventana Surfboard Guys, so big thanks to them. And in today's episode, we talk everything from fisheries management to how we got started in art and much, much more. So I hope you guys enjoy the show and make sure to stick around towards the end because we do have some announcements. Beyond the Buoy is coming out with its own merchandise to help support the show and give more brands the opportunity to come on and spread the word about how they're helping our world's oceans and blue economy. Thanks and enjoy the show. Well, uh, welcome, Ethan, to another episode of Beyond the Buoy. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, and I'm super excited to have you on because you just do so many things. I mean, you're you're a scientist, an artist, a researcher. The list to is on and on and on. So uh, welcome to Beyond the Buoy, and uh, glad to have you on. Hey, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah. So, Ethan, uh, why don't you just give us a little intro as to who you are, what you do, and uh, where you come from? For sure. Um I uh, am a marine scientist by trade. That's my background. Um, but m- recently, I've been really focusing on making artwork from reclaimed materials, either old fishing rope or uh, plastic trash found on the beach or, um, yeah, so all kinds of stuff. And uh, I guess I got my start in all that through surfing, ultimately. Um, guilty of being a lifelong surfer and... Growing up in Santa Cruz, California, I got interested in uh, great white sharks because we have a healthy population here. And that led me to want to work with this researcher at Stanford University named Barbara Block. And I worked with her for uh, seven years or so through undergrad and master's and then at the Monterey Bay Aquarium as a technician uh, studying tunas and white sharks. Very cool. And Why do you think white sharks were, were, was that species that kind of attracted you? Uh, well, they're attractive to a lot of people, really. They're, they're one of the sexiest fish out there. Agreed. And, yeah, and uh, that ultimately it, it was driven by a marine biology teacher that I had in high school uh, who got me to think about white sharks differently as opposed to you know, hunting, killing machines, and to be really really interesting, mysterious uh, animals that we don't really know that much about. And that that's what kind of flipped the switch for me from fear to curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, you know, I just, I just moved back to Rhode Island from Hawaii where I was nice. living for the past seven months. And, and I gained a whole new appreciation for, you know, big predatorial animals such as sharks. And, there is a shark that lived in the harbor, and if anyone listening is familiar with Honokaha Harbor um, in Kona, Hawaii, on the Big Island, nice. there's a shark called um, Laverne. Okay. And Laverne is about 15 feet long. Yowza. And yeah, she's big, and she's a tiger shark. Oh and my god. So, you know, just just the thought of you're in the harbor, and in some days the the water wasn't as clear, or maybe it was nighttime, so you couldn't see the bottom, and just this you know, 15 foot tiger shark lurking oh, in and amongst all the boats was a little, was a little sketchy, but I, I came to appreciate her <laughs> because, you know, e- each and every species has its own, you know, niche. And it, and for her, it was it, like most tiger sharks, they're scavengers. So yep. she was cleaning up the bottom and, and helping with the ecosystem and, and so on Sweet. and so forth. So that's um, cool. Yeah, it was really cool, and and unfortunately, one night I actually dropped my sunglasses in the harbor, <laughs> and they were a nice pair of sunglasses. So I was like, oh man, Uh-oh. yeah, 
I guess I gotta go swimming. So I jumped in the water. I had a light on me, so but it was <laughs> there was ten seconds of fear in there for sure. Oh yeah, uh, the tiger sharks are, you know, obviously a totally different animal. Uh, they are, uh, I think, where white sharks are kind of uh, cat-like. They're a little bit, you know, hesitant um, unless they know they can take something out. Um, tiger sharks, by all accounts, I have very little experience with them, are a lot more bold, and they'll just mm. approach and investigate right, you know, right away. So, uh, I am oftentimes grateful I live and surf in a cold water environment with, you know, uh, really just wh- white sharks to worry about. Right, uh, right, and it's kind <laughs> of funny how, yeah, I mean, it's funny how, uh, how the the stigma against white sharks really stems from, I think, the movie Jaws. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and how you know that you know this the, the music starts playing and then all of a sudden you know you you don't want to go in the water because you know this big the idea of this big white shark coming at you even though yeah. they're one of the more docile um, sharks of Gen- all the species right yeah yeah generally speaking they're um, they're uh, you know we have a lot of them and we have relatively few attacks here mm-hmm. in California. And I yeah. think that that speaks to their demeanor um, and their, I guess you could say, wisdom that they know what is what. And uh, I mean, they can be over 70 years old, so they, they've accrued a lot of experience. And that's what helps me sleep well at night is just knowing that the sharks kind of have it figured out. You know, I, I, I should say this with a big caveat. We unfortunately had a, a fatal shark attack at my local beach um, mm. uh, two weeks ago. So that was really sad. It, it, it does happen, you know. Um, right. And it was guaranteed a white shark. Um, but I don't know. You know, I, I think we, anybody who uses the ocean has to have a, a measured respect and understanding that you're going to roll the dice, you know, when you go out there. So yeah. you can't really blame the sharks for making a mistake like that. No, not at all. And I think that's a really good point you brought up is having that respect for the ocean. Um in something that you definitely exude through your artwork and all Thanks. the research that you've done. And it, it's very prevalent in that you have a, a huge amount of respect for the ocean and you want to educate others and inspire others to kind of follow the same course. Um, so yeah, no that. problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, the, so you go from, you know, doing shark research, your, your high school teacher is like, yeah, you, sh- you should really look at sharks in a different way. You go on to work for the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Can you yep. touch upon that? Because, I mean, Monterey Bay Aquarium, that's that's really well known. And if anyone's ever seen Finding Dory, you know, yeah, obviously, right? Everyone knows that. <laughs> so um, go ahead and, uh, yeah, let's talk about Monterey Bay. I'm interested. For sure. Yeah, I, I love that movie, Finding Dory, because uh, particularly because of all the little details where it's like, hey, that's like exactly the the handrail in the staircase that i go down you know every day oh no uh, is they they really did design it based off of the Monterey bay aquarium That's i don't think cool. they were able to name it Monterey bay aquarium but it was uh it's a very direct uh reference anyway yeah, so that's right. pretty cool it is an amazing place and um i should say that i don't really work there right now uh i this is the first year my research contract with them hasn't been able to go through because of the pandemic um Mm -hmm. so that's kind of a bummer but i started there in 2012 uh working full-time for about three years and then part-time for the following well since since then um and uh, my job was as a research technician so i managed this facility called the tuna research and conservation center 
which is awesome. It's like this uh, giant uh, facility behind the scenes with a bunch of tanks. And in those tanks are swimming, you know, schools of bluefin and yellowfin tunas. And those fish, some of those fish will go on to the exhibit, the one million gallon uh, outer sea exhibit. Uh, so like it's the closest you can really ever come to seeing a tuna, um, you know, alive and relaxed swimming. And, and so it's really special. But then the other fish are used for uh, research projects by a team at Stanford University. And we study their ecology. Uh, well, in captivity, we're really focused on their physiology, I should mm -hmm. say. We uh, Tunas are warm-blooded. I'm not sure uh, how many people know that. It's I kind did of, not know that. That's really yeah, interesting. It's very interesting. It's kind of the key to their uh, lifestyle and their you know uh, distribution around the planet. Um, I should be more specific, though. Uh, bluefin and yellowfin tunas are uh, the species we were studying, and they are both warm-blooded. Um, there's a handful of other species, but that's what we were focused on that can do that. Okay. Um, basically, it means they run hot. They're like little Ferraris. They need a lot of fuel, uh, <laughs> to, and they they have to uh, in order to swim fast and live a you know really hot. They have a really high metabolic rate. Um, so essentially, we have a tuna treadmill that we would put the tunas into, let them swim in place, and measure their oxygen consumption over time. And so that was a bulk of my laboratory research supporting postdocs and uh, uh, students at Stanford. But that relates to our understanding of how tunas operate in the wild. Um, bluefin swim from Japan, where they're born, to California uh, within their first year of life. And then they swim back and forth a couple of times mm -hmm. over, over the course of their life. That's, it's about 6,000 miles each way. And they can do it in a uh, little over a month. That's insane. Yeah. That's crazy. So it's like the questions are become, it just opens up questions, right? It's like, how do they do that um, physiologically? What What is their musculature? What is their tendon structure? How do they consume um, enough energy to do that? And it's super, super cool stuff. Yeah, no. What were some of your, what were some of your biggest findings when it came to, you know, learning all about, you know, a yellowfin and bluefin tuna? Um, so my personal research was on their bioenergetics. Um, and I think it really, that, that work really impressed upon me just how much food these animals need to operate. Mm -hmm. Um, and why maybe growing them in aquaculture scenarios is not the most efficient operate idea in the world. Um, with bluefin, you know, there's different numbers from the literature, but really it takes about 20 pounds of say sardines or other bait fish to grow about one pound of bluefin tuna. Wow. That's you know, crazy. If for comparison, like a salmon, you know, the, the food conversion ratio is going to be closer to, you know, 1.5 or below to, to one pound of salmon growth. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, they're, it's like, it's like farming hummers is kind of how I describe it. Right. <laughs> um, but um, that, you know, and that's just because tunas are very high level, uh, high trophic level animals that, if you compared them to a terrestrial animal, uh, it, it wouldn't exist. Like the, a, a tuna, it would be equivalent to something that would eat a tiger um, in terms of its level in the ecosystem. Right. So that's why it takes so much energy to, to, to get them to grow is because they're, they're really the top predator. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. So I graduated from the University of Rhode Island, and um, that's a pretty 
you know, they're pretty well renowned for oceanography and they've started to have a pretty good aquaculture program. And one of the programs at the school, uh, at the Bay campus here in Narragansett Bay, um, they're actually looking to farm tuna. So a friend of mine went out and he caught the tuna, the first, uh, the first batch of tunas, brought them back live, put them in the tanks, and they've been trying their best to, you know, work on a solution to farm tunas and i'm not quite sure where they are at the process now but when i was in school they were having a, a lot of trouble with the size of the tank and tunas bumping into the size totally. of the tank yeah and, and hurting their their noses or the their snouts or whatever you would call it a tuna totally nose. um Dude, so sensitive yeah. yeah so sensitive and they would eventually die because of a bacteria that would get in them so yep, yep it yep, is yep. is that kind of the part of the motivation for studying tuna or is it also just to know more about the the physiology and ecology of the species itself. Yeah. So I kind of came into tuna research, um, not begrudgingly. I got a job offer and I didn't, I I figured I probably wasn't going to get another one uh, that would use my degree in the way that, you know, I should be using it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I said yes to my job with tuna, even though I really love sharks and I I just kind of wanted to drive to Chile in a, a bus and surf um, after graduating from my master's. So uh, I, I, I long-winded way of saying I got into tuna not thinking they were that cool, but then realizing that they were they're really one of the coolest fish, not just because of all that physiology and their amazing migrations, but because they are an international commodity, mm-hmm. because they are a lifestyle. They're like a passion for for a lot of fishermen and and people out there so it's a fish with a lot of baggage and politics and i really like that about them they're very interesting so i I can totally agree with that i've i've had an interest in tuna and and salmon as well because i think they kind of play hand in hand as well in in the sense that there's a lot of baggage and culture around that one particular fish for sure for sure and I, I think uh, where I was going with that is to say that, that aqu- tuna aquaculture is one of those kind of flashpoints, I guess, in, in conversation that people tend to have strong opinions about. And um, I think it's interesting and I, 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 I'm open, try to be open minded about it. Um, I think it's really important to set out the, the, the terms um, correctly when talking about it that um, there's closed life cycle aquaculture, and that's true farming. Um, so you start with a mama tuna, it spawns you, with, you know, with the daddy tuna, and you grow up that hatchling to market size. And that's, that's really only done currently, mm, I'm going to say in Japan, and I believe there's a facility in Spain, I don't think the Australians are doing that yet, um, currently. Uh, but uh, then there's farm, and then there's ranching, which is the predominant way that tuna aquaculture works. And that is you go out to the wild, you wrangle up a school of bluefin, you tow them in a pen to the coast, and you fatten them up until the market price is right and the, the tunas are nice and fat. So that is, um, both systems are fairly inefficient. One system draws from the wild stock and kind of is part of the depletion that's been occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and one system is more contained and maybe is more be- is better. But I think last I checked, true closed life cycle bluefin aquaculture accounts for like one less than 1% of global production. So it's, it's really currently a drop in the bucket 
and it's really hard. Um, so I don't yeah. see it as a silver bullet to overfishing or anything. Right. Well, I, I really don't think there there is a silver bullet to to the what's going on in the fishing industry because there's just so many factors. And I don't know if you ever heard of the man Hugo Grotius. No. No. So he has this ideology and he he's an old guy, right? Old white guy in the past. And um, he had the ideology that that the ocean is free and it has the never ending resource. Right. So back in the day when people were like, oh, we can just keep fishing and fishing and fishing. And then all of a sudden, you know, fast forward to today. And now we're really starting to realize, well, this isn't a resource that we can just keep taking, taking, there has to be some sort of balance. So, um, if, if you ever, if anyone listening, he's a really interesting guy to, uh, to, to learn about. Um, and yeah, it was in, in terms of fishing as well. So, um, yeah. So you so you get into tuna aquaculture, but your your passion is really sharks. But then it all <laughs> all of a sudden kind of evolves into tuna, and yep. which I think is really interesting because I I've had some similar passions as well. But then where does the whole where does art fall into place? Because I feel like you've done, you know, if you go on your social media and your website, it's very much so driven by the art. Yeah. And you kind of had to dig a little bit. And, and learn that you were more you're actually a, a scientist so yeah where did that fall into play uh yeah you know i i think it's a funny thing of uh you know uh categorizing oneself to the extent that that's like a productive or use, useful thing to do the, the reality is is that i just have very simple uh you know interests uh and uh i know what i like to do i like to make stuff and i like to spend time on the ocean and learn, and learn about the ocean. So the, the art has been there um, for, for me for a long time in the sense that I grew up making uh, surfboards in my garage uh, from when I was about 13, 14. And I was just really obsessed with that to the extent that I just didn't really want to do anything else. Even the shark stuff was like, eh, yeah, I'll do it because I have to go to college and I should right. probably study something interesting to me. Um, but the problem was I, I was trying, I went to Stanford and I was like, day one, I'm asking around at all the different shops on campus, like, Hey, uh, cool. If I make some surfboards in the, this, you know, in the wood shop here. And they're like, yeah, no, not, not, not okay. Uh, <laughs> Oh really? They weren't about <laughs> yeah. it. No way. Yeah. I mean, if anybody's made a surfboard, it's, it's a lot like boat building, if you will, but, oh, it's very uh, messy. <laughs> super messy, super toxic, really. Uh, fine uh, polyurethane foam dust and mm-hmm. uh, uh, f- you know, f- lots of volatile organic compounds and uh, f- you know the worst part is the fiberglass dust so they wanted nothing to do with it so they're like yeah kid no uh, but hey take an art class if you really want to build something and so that I got it took a sculpture class and I ended up taking every sculpture offering that they had while uh, you know, being able to count that towards my environmental science major, which was really, uh, I think, a, a blessing that I was able to do take an interdisciplinary pr- approach because mm-hmm. um, it definitely set me up for where I am now of kind of doing, you know, following both passions at the same time. Um, so yeah, that's that's how I kind of flipped the switch into um, into thinking about telling stories about the all the environmental science material I was learning but having an outlet in the in a creative outlet to to share those ideas 
Mm. So that's well, that's what happened. Yeah, yeah no, it, to- it, it totally shows because in every piece of art that you've made, you can almost see that there's a story behind it. And it's as almost as if your, your experience in school, you know, like you said, it was an outlet, but you're almost kind of trying to make your experience tangible, right? Mm. Like, and how is and telling the story of the ocean through a piece of art or a sculpture and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, I'm looking at some of the pictures that you that you've done and, and also the sculptures and one that really sticks out and I, I'm, you know, fairly certain you're, you're pretty well known for is the wave, right? Oh, you know, it's taking, taking a, a wave and turning it into all of the you know marine debris that we might find in the ocean such as lines bottles it was, did i see one was made out of golf balls is that right i did make one out of uh it was like a 30 foot long 10 foot tall wave made from uh over twenty thousand golf balls collected out of the ocean off uh, pebble beach but but i didn't collect them a local teenager uh did she helped build it. Oh, no way. So, yeah. <laughs> and and not only that, but you've garnered the support of, you know, guys like um, Jack Johnson, right? So Yeah, yeah. So you I mean, you're you're doing this on a level that really can reach so many people and and tell the story of how the ocean is being affected by marine debris and and how we can help fix that. So, you got to you got to tell me like how do you come up with the ideas of, you know, creating the waves and do they just hit you or you're you lying in bed or you know, where does where does it start? Uh, you what know, been interested in and how artists kind of find <laughs> their way, you know? I, I hear you. Yeah, I am. I am too. Uh, it, it's it's. I don't have a straight answer. Um, I, I I think that it, it's really case by case. So the the, the idea for the um, the plastic free pipeline sculpture, which was like the replica of the you know the famous surf spot pipeline on the North Shore, that that came just out of uh, spending time on the North Shore. Um, surfing uh but also doing beach cleanups with a group called sustainable coastlines hawaii oh yeah we've had them that, on the show nice yeah, yeah they're they're uh amazing they uh they take beach cleanups to the next level and they're also the first to admit that it's not about beach cleanups it's about education um and opening people's eyes to the scale of waste um so you know they, that's what they did for me i mean i i've traveled a lot for work and Hawaii really is one of the craziest places for for marine debris. You can find so much uh, old fishing gear out there. It it will it blows my mind every time I go out. Mm-hmm. And well, I can agree to that. Yeah, you know, and I think I was really trying to find a way to communicate the the heaviness, both literal, like the the, the gear is so heavy, it's all saturated, but it's just giant masses of net. It takes ten people to drag them off a beach. Um, to communicate that with this immersion um, that I think is what really can help reach people when we see ourselves in the context of, of our, our waste, that it's like it might help flip a switch of understanding mm-hmm. and uh, critical thinking. So that, that was the goal is that, you know, to be immersed in a wave is the most beautiful and, uh, you know, exhilarating experience. And then trying to flip that a little bit to like, giving this emotional uh, element of, you know, connecting this problem to our own action. Um, that was the goal with the, the pipeline piece. 
Yeah, well, it, I mean, I think the word immersion sums it up beautifully because, you know, you truly do become immersed in your art, not only because you can touch it, but you can relate to it, right? And you can actually go and stand on the surfboard in the wave. So not only metaphorically, but physically, you're actually becoming immersed in the art. And it's just really interesting to look at how you've taken something that has been thought as a marine debris or trash or garbage or what have you and, and turn it into something beautiful and and not only that but have a meaning behind it so nice. how does um how do you start like where where does that even so you you have the idea of the wave and then collecting the product <laughs> getting getting the people together like making it how does that all work uh, I, i'm glad you asked because I, I i didn't uh uh get to kind of give kudos to where they're to where they're due um you know it's one thing to have an idea right like uh, and that that is it's totally a different deal to really build the community and uh to to make it happen Mm -hmm. um that you know it it, it, there's there were like seven months of phone calls and emails leading up to the three weeks it took me to build that um piece so it really is about planning and um, finding your, your team. And I got really lucky, um, I guess it was, uh, almost a year before I built that piece that Kim and Jack Johnson, uh, happened to see one of my, um, reclaimed rope, uh, artworks at an art show that was connected to the United Nations, uh, uh, golly, Marine Debris Conference, um, down in San Diego. So they Mm -hmm. saw my art and they're like, Hey, this is sweet. Uh, we got to get this piece. And I'm like, whoa, like you guys can have it. Like they had ended up, they had like sponsored the entire art show. So they're like, oh, that's really sweet. And it just kind of started a conversation. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to be in Japan. Uh, uh, I can't remember what happened, but Kim was like, yeah, we're going to be touring in Japan, but uh, I'll let you know when we're back. And I'm like, and we'll talk. I'm like, that's funny. I'm going to Japan next week with my fiance. And then I'm going on a, a work trip there. And they're like, oh, you should just come meet us and uh, we're playing this festival. And we're like, okay. Uh, so, so randomly, we found ourselves, you know, backstage at this big rock festival with Jack Johnson and his family. And, uh, you know, it was just like surreal. And we're talking about art. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I've worked with Sustainable Coastlines. I really want to make this giant wave. And they're like, oh, that sounds cool. Let's do it. I'm like, <laughs> okay. You yeah. know, like it was yeah. just like this totally surreal, uh, experience, but they were so generous to just, you know, to invite us in like that. And, uh, I ended up building the golf or building the, the sculpture at their old house, um, which is where, uh, they run their nonprofit Kokua Hawaii foundation. Okay. Um, which is, which is fantastic. They basically do, it's focused on youth education all across the islands. Um, one of their programs is called Plastic Free Hawaii. And they really, Kim especially, really organized the community around the project. Um, she got us uh, additional support from the Turtle Bay Foundation. It's a big resort, Turtle Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they helped support the piece. Um, in addition to friends at the World Surf League, uh, they have a nonprofit called WSL Pure, and I think uh, an, they, they'd be a great person for you to talk to as well. Uh, oh, Reece, World Surf League, you said, right? Yeah, yeah. WSL Pure. Uh, the guy's name is uh, Reese Pacheco. He's awesome. Okay. And so awesome. 
they've been really supportive as well on that project and others. Um, but yeah, it basically turned in then Hydroflask uh, donated product to do a social media campaign to help people uh, share their photos and interact with the sculpture. And then we launched it at the uh, Pipe Masters surf contest. We had tens of thousands of people coming through the wave, getting barreled, taking their pictures. And then it, on, we hit the broadcast um, through the, the surf contest as well. And it was just, uh, it blew my mind that it was able to, to have an impact that it did. And I th it's still going. Um, so it just feels really lucky that it came together the way it did. Yeah, and that's super <laughs> cool. And it just sounds like it was so organic in the way it came together, right? And all of a sudden, you get a phone call, and they're like, "Hey, do you want to want to do this?" And you're like, "Uh, crap," you know, like yeah, exactly. Uh, you're like, oh my god, now I have to do it. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And it's different when it's you know, it might be a friend that says that, but when Jack Johnson is is calling you up and saying that, you're oh, like, oh yeah. All right, maybe, maybe I gotta I gotta do this, and I get to do this now. So the yeah, the pressure was was very real. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm sure. Tell, how was that? Like, what did that feel like? Uh, I think I, I, I'm not going to say I'm used to it at this point, but I, I do have a tendency to set myself up for like these really high stress builds and stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I don't know. I, I in hindsight, you know, it was chaos, but um, I was just lucky to have, uh, you know, some friends on the island who were able to help me. Like I built the thing out of reclaimed lumber, which was just so hard to do because it was just rotting and just the worst quality lumber. But I had a good buddy who's a, a good builder, and we built the the structure together, and I couldn't have done it without him. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, the pressure was super real, especially since we only had, like, you know, a little under – yeah, li okay, a little over three weeks. But it was so intense. Um, we put about 15,000 nails into it to – Holy crap attach all the material it was just chaos yeah yeah well what i'm pulling away from it all is it, it's uh not only was it just a a huge undertaking right it was yeah it was something that has so much meaning and meaning but it, what it really comes down to is the community you know it wasn't yeah. just it wasn't just you right and totally and i think yeah. in a lot of in a lot of ways all these people that i've had been very fortunate to interview it, it always takes a village and, yeah. and you had mentioned earlier, you know, like pick your team, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so important. And something that I've always found that you really are, you really do become the person that you surround yourself by. And, and those that are surrounding you are, you know, going to propel you and turn you into a, a different person in ways that you never knew were possible. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it just seems like that's just kind of how life works. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but throughout this, you, you mentioned earlier, you focus not only on the art itself, you also focus on the education aspect yep. and, you know, going through your website and your social media, I noticed that you have gone out to schools and done some educational seminars or classes that revolve around what you're doing with your art, your tuna fishing and, and everything else that you have going on in your life. Yeah, I, I, I really, um, I, that's the more meaningful element to what I do sometimes just you know you know being by myself in the studio uh you know knocking out you know artwork is fun and that's I really do enjoy that but it also has like a element of you know it's not very social and it's you know you can share it on social media but that's different from 
having a conversation in person and, and sharing these ideas with, especially with young people um, who are, you know, bombarded by social media and, uh, in a, and usually in a bad way. So I, I think there's a lot to be said for the in-person, uh, you know, interaction of a high school assembly that mm-hmm. I think that I've always believed that you can have kind of a, you know, a shock and awe effect um, by supplementing curriculum that way w- through school visits. So I'm really, really proud of the work we did this last winter, um, again with Kokua Hawaii Foundation out on the North Shore. We visited every North Shore school uh, and uh, did art activities and uh, science talk um, for over a thousand students over a course of like 10 days. It was really intense. That is, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's really dedicated team from Kokua Hawaii and also from Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii. Um, Also, my friends at a company called Boreo, uh, who you should also talk to. Yeah, I'd love to. You know, net net recycling and... uh, stuff so I, I don't know I, I think that the the youth education element is pretty much an essential part of my of my work um, in the sense that I need it to feel good about uh, the contribution that I'm having that making and selling art is important to me but there has to be a whole nother layer of, of true education with it um, so that's that's why I focus on that. And I also have a, a nonprofit that is is focused on that called uh, Countercurrent. So, okay. Yeah, that's that's been a, um, a slowly building effort, but the, the golf ball wave project was was a uh, directly part a part of Countercurrent. Mm-hmm. Um, and in what ways is your art and the and what you're doing now? How how has that um, been implemented by Countercurrent? Like, is that its own separate entity now, or is it all kind of you know, I, a lot of these things have so many layers that it's hard to just, you know, just say this is that and this is that. It, it seems yeah. like it's all just one, right? Yeah, and that's a really interesting uh, element, right? Because it, it, it's, I, I try to, I, I basically have three jobs is the way I think about it. I work for Monterey Bay Aquarium, at least typically, not this summer. Um, I have my art business, making and uh, selling reclaimed rope art mostly. And then I have my nonprofit Countercurrent, which I direct, mm-hmm. uh, and they 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 simultaneously have to be distinct, you know, not just for tax purposes, but just to keep everything straight. Even though I'm the one doing the work, you know, so it, it is confusing, but I I do make an effort to have clear criteria for like this is a Countercurrent nonprofit par- project, this is a, a for profit, you know, uh, art installation, right. so. I, the, the line I usually draw on the sand is, you know, if it's really geared towards public education, it's not a commercial piece like the golf ball wave. I'm not going to sell that piece. I, I tow it around on a trailer. Do you really? Yeah, yeah. It That's weighs awesome. 9,000 pounds. Um, it's a lot of go- golf balls are heavy, it turns out. Yeah, um, how many golf balls are in the in the structure itself? Uh, at least 25,000 is, is the real answer. But I, I, I haven't counted um, the, uh, you know, and, you know, for that piece, like I tow it to different festivals and surf contests and schools and, you know, it exists to educate people. It does not exist to be a fine art object sitting in a museum. So, or get sold to a private buyer, you know, it's, it's just, right. it's just not what it's about. So that's like a clear example of what Countercurrent does. 
Yeah, I love it. And 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 you've garnered a lot of support, you know, not only by Jack Johnson and, and his foundations who we've talked about, um, but also recently a I can't, you know, you're gonna you're gonna hate me for <laughs> trying to pronounce it. Visala Vis uh, Vis uh, Visla Okay, yeah, Visla yeah. Surf, who has taken your artwork and printed it on their board shorts, t shirts, hats, and all all sorts of apparel. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's actually made out of recycled fishing nets or plastics that have been taken out of the ocean and then turned into a garment uh yeah yeah in this case um they they didn't use that exact production method they came up with this this uh recycled polyester blend with coconut fiber which is um uh what they call it cocotex which is pretty cool stuff so you know i i think you know Poetically, it would be really rad if my board shorts were made out of uh, fishing nets, considering that's what my art is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also am just down f- that they're getting creative and exploring different materials, because I, I think that is what kind of nudges the industry and our consumer choices in a different direction from where we are now. Right. So, um, so but yeah, they, I, I insisted and they, they agreed that the, all the products uh, were based on recycled materials. And I'm really grateful for that. I don't think many brands would uh, necessarily have made that effort. Um, and, you know, I'm not like a big deal artist, right? So like they didn't really have to say yes, but they, they I think we're already making that push towards sustainability already when they reached out to do the clothing line. So the timing just worked out really well. Right. Well, I think now, you know, that's a really good point. You know, you're seeing a lot of these these um, these companies and brands start to move to a more sustainable, you know, production, whether it's the actual product itself or how they're you know going about getting the product to people, so on and mm-hmm. so forth. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I've always had this kind of saying that I use and, and it's not my saying because a lot of people say it, but um, I like to think it is. And it, that is a uh, vote with your wallet, right? Yep. And it's yep. the idea of trying to support and vote with the dollar, the mighty dollar to people that you support, organizations, companies, so on and so forth. And I bring it up because there's so many, you know, there's so many clothing brands out there, right, that aren't mm-hmm. doing that, using coconuts and whatnot to, yeah. <laughs> and to you know, make garments and, and try and remove and recycle plastics. Mm-hmm. But this one is right, so let's try and support that. And, and the same to you, right? Like you're someone who is going about his day with the interest of the ocean in mind, and trying to educate and help support that industry, right? Supporting yeah. kids, inspiring people, so on and so forth. So, you know, when you buy a piece of art from you, you're not only you're not only saying, "Hey, I support the ocean," but you're also supporting Ethan as well. So, well, I appreciate that, and it's. Uh, you know, I, I feel really lucky that, that, um, I feel like I took a pretty big risk stepping away from, uh, my research career and kind of reflecting. I did that in 2014, really Mm -hmm. shifting from full time. And I was pretty nervous, but I also knew I was also felt like I had to try. I was either going to go do my PhD for six or seven years and, uh, or I was going to try to make it as an artist. And I'm, I'm pretty glad that I tried to, to, I'm trying with the art um, because I, I I think that it's it's working in the sense that I'm able to have an impact, you know, big or small. I'm not sure, but 
it's 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 unique to me. I'm 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 doing what I want to be doing, and telling the stories that I, I want to tell. So I I am really grateful for that. And I I, I wouldn't say I'm I, I'm able to make a living. I'm able to pay pay the rent. So it's the kind of thing where I'm pretty content with that. But I I do uh, I do know that you know I I'm gonna try and keep going and go bigger. So right, of course. Yeah. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing where things go. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. And did you ever, like, when you were going through school or high school, college, growing up, did you ever think, you know, this was where you would be? Um, I, I've always kind of, that's, I always like to tell, like, you know, students and stuff, uh, when they ask, like, how did you make up your minds about, oh, should I study art or science or music or, um, you know, ph- philosophy? I, you know, it's like, my personal experience has been that it's been really productive and helpful to have multiple passions and to not sacrifice one for the other. I think that that's pretty common that people feel like they have like parental pressure and stuff to, you know, stick to stick to one thing and do it well. And that's great if that's your thing, if you're into that. But I can say personally that I've definitely felt like a synergistic effect of not giving up on either of my careers. Um, and I think that they feed off each other. And w- one example of that is that, you know, I would say 90% of the artwork that I've been making over the past three, four years has been inspired by my time in Japan mm. uh, and working there studying tuna. And it's like, I never would have probably gone to Japan or not, you know, not spent as much time there, uh, were it not for that research opportunity. So it's like, I, and I, I was cursing that opportunity under my breath, like, I just wanted to be in my art studio making stuff. But ultimately, it turned out to be this major inspiration for me to spend time in little Japanese fishing villages. And, you know, it, you, you can't plan that stuff. It, you just kind of have to, to play your cards the best you can. And don't, yeah, uh, yeah don't, don't give up on one thing for the other. Right. And it's kind of funny how your experiences start to shape, you know, your direction and your trajectory as to as to where things end up and until you've actually gone through a part of that process because right the process is always evolving you have to almost stop and reflect like you said and look back and say oh well that's why i went there and and this all makes this all starts to make sense right yeah it's 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 confused i I think we have an ability as humans to to rationalize the past and that can be good and bad you know but i i would say that in my experience so far you know it it just because something seems stressful and like maybe like a, like a, it's pulling you away from your other passion, you know, you can always kind of circle back. And I've done that a few different times throughout my careers that you kind of, I keep kind of coming back to art and I'm inspired by the time I spend on research vessels or, um, you know, working in Japan or in Mexico. So Mm -hmm. it, it, you can't, it's not a straight line path and uh, I try to em- emphasize that to kids for sure. Yeah, and y- and you never know, you know, you never know what person is gonna be able to to turn that turn that dial up or or that experience that moment. So I think it's a really nice segue as to a question that I always like to ask is: Has there ever been a person, a moment, or maybe even a place that really kind of influenced you and has put you on the path that you are on today? Just like one moment that kind of sticks out. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know it exact. I know it very clearly. Um, 
and I kind of alluded to it earlier in the, in the talk, it was that when I first started taking art class at Stanford, I, I, all I really wanted to do was make utilitarian things, surfboards, skateboards, you know. And my professor, she looked over my shoulder at my sketch pad, and she's like, Ethan, those are cool, but instead of just making, like, you know, useful stuff in a way, like, try and tell a story. Like, try, try to... Try to use the material itself to tell a story. And I remember just like the, 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 the switch just flipped and it was mm. like, Oh, Oh, uh, okay. You know? And I, that my project, the, the next project that I made was an eight foot tall wave made out of old cardboard. I found all across campus and, um, totally set me on the path I'm on. So that her name was, uh, Terry Burlier. She's a professor at Stanford and a good friend of mine. Um, so, she she definitely flipped the switch for me. Mm, that's really interesting. And, and it only took that one moment, right, to put you on the path as to where you are today. Very and, simple, very memorable moment, yeah. And that's interesting because not a lot of people have that 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 specific moment. You know, everyone has mm. that light switch in that time that they can kind of think back to, but it's not as defined. Like, mm. I'm sure if you, if you really went back to it, you could probably find the day and time, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I could. <laughs> yeah, so, but that's really cool. And, you know, I've asked that question to almost everyone on the show so far, and, and I haven't gotten that directive and answer. So it's really interesting to hmm. see how, you know, in, in every way possible, it, it doesn't matter how you get to that moment or how defined it is. It, it yeah. all just depends on how your perception is of it, right? True, true. Um, and so how do you think the ocean has been an influence as to, you know, growing up, becoming, you know, being an avid surfer to really be on your career. Cause it's so, you know, you're, you're not defined by just the ocean. You're defined by many things, but mm. you know, the ocean has been a theme in your entire life and through your career and your work that what do you like, what does the ocean mean to you? I guess is the question. Yeah. I, I, I do feel like it's, it's the, um, it's the unifier across the, my different interests in the sense that, I mean, it's, it, the ocean is a blessing and a curse. You know, it, once you're hooked on surfing and fishing, you know, it, it really uh, influences every other decision you make. You know, so about from everything about what I've wanted to do career-wise, it, it's all been geared towards staying by the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, very selfishly, you know, so. Uh, that that's that was very intentional. That I want to be a marine biologist, so I could stay by the coast. <laughs> I just right, thought that right. would be a logical, sure thing, you know. And I'm grateful for that. It, it's 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 played out that way. Um, I I think the ocean taught me more than anything um, uh, to try to be humble because the it, you know you get smacked down pretty quick the second you uh, pretend you know what you're doing. Um, and it's just you always have to be on guard, and that that is, I think, a a, a healthy way to live, um, to respect that power. Um, but then the other thing it's taught me is that it's such a like a, a there's so much politics around it. You know, it, it means different things to different people, and I appreciate that those different perspectives. Like a lot of people say, vilify. Japanese commercial fishermen for, you know, killing and eating all the tuna. And I just can't really 
you know, that's a, that's a perspective, but I, I also have been lucky to work with Japanese commercial fishermen extensively and they're some of the nicest people, you know, and mm -hmm. they, you know, help you out with anything. Um, and I kind of think that the ocean is a unique resource in that regard of bringing disparate people together, often with conflict, but really we all kind of want the same thing. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a centrist. I think we can use the ocean and not use it up, um, have our fish and eat it too, mm -hmm. all that. And, um, you know, I think research is, is the central guiding concept to making that work um yeah with, pol with good policy so anyway that's kind of a meandering answer for you but no that was, that was beautiful that was perfect yeah i mean <laughs> i couldn't agree more you know i've always been kind of the person that you know this isn't both these men aren't aren't ocean related but you have john muir right mm -hmm. who's, who's sure. famous for helping you know theodore roosevelt found the national parks and in, in yellowstone in particular mm -hmm. and then you also have gifford pinchot who founded the National Forest Service. Nice. And, you know, again, these guys who were both people that loved the environment, loved loved all all parts of the earth, and I'm sure the ocean as well, but they're more terrestrial-based, right? Mm -hmm. So John Muir, who is a preservationist, you know, mm -hmm. by all by all accounts, and then Gifford Pinchot was more of a conservationist. So mm. it's, it's kind of like finding that happy medium. And yeah. for those that are, are kind of, you know, Conservation and preservation kind of get thrown around a lot. But at yeah. the end of the day, preservation, I like to put it simply as, you know, you, you want to look at something, but you don't want to touch it versus mm. conservation is we want to look at something, but we also want to be able to utilize it while not using it up. You know, yeah. I guess today's but today's term is probably more sustainability, right? Right. Yeah. Um, Such an interesting distinction. And yeah, very. I've, I've run into that uh, very directly through my time in Japan working with the with Japanese government researchers there studying bluefin tuna. Uh, that's what we've been doing the past five summers. And th for them, conservation is pretty much a swear word. You know, that hmm. con conservation there means, uh, gets wrapped up in the whaling debate. It gets wrapped up in, you know, Greenpeace rhetoric, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, to saying, you know, don't use the ocean when it's really a, a, a nation that, that is, you know, in a lot of ways reliant culturally anyway on, on the ocean. Right. And so they are into sustainable resource management. Like that's their, their the government agency's mission is sustainable resource management. At the end of the day, I'm like, yeah, great idea. Let's, you know, if that's what you want to call it, you know, let's, let's make sure there's bluefin tuna for future generations. Awesome. Um, you know, yeah, I, I can meet them, meet them there. Um, maybe I'm more sentimental about it in, in some ways about the beauty of bluefin and preserving them in different ways, but, mm -hmm. but really we're, we're looking at the same thing. Um, so anyway, I thought that, that those nuances are, are important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's, I think it's really important to be able to get the perspective of, of other of all the other cultures, you know, so, you know, the, in the American culture, fishing is, is very different compared mm. to the Japanese culture and the Chinese culture. And, you know, in, in a lot of the Pacific ocean, because that's where a lot of fishing happens, you know, totally. Um, you know, Atlantic has fishing as well, but Pacific, you know, granted, cause we're talking about Hawaii and California. So, um, you know, it's just interesting that we, we can't really make that assumption, you know, right off the bat in, in every culture, 
that is on the ocean, you know, has a strong appreciation for it, right? Whether you you see it maybe not as strong as yours or, or the next person's, but you know, they appreciate it nonetheless. And and what I find through your artwork is that you show that appreciation, but in so many different lights, right? Thanks. And and you're also able to incorporate the appreciation, but also the problems that are associated with it, right? So that the the additional marine debris and the nets and, and I'm actually looking at a um. Oh, I I'm going to pronounce this again wrong. It's called what? Gayutaku or Oh, uh, Gayutaku. Gayutaku, right? Of a fish and then he's wrapped in the net. And um you know, that's such a strong picture because at one at one time you're looking at this beautiful fish, but then it's also being, you know, wrangled by this net. So I just find your artwork to be so intriguing and it, and it kind of it offers a lot of, you know, points to discussion. I guess to to sum it up. Thank you. Uh I think that 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 that's that's a that's a great compliment because I my personal view is that uh, effective art should should uh, get your gears turning. Um, it, it I think it should hit you in the heart first and then hit you in the brain second. Um, so if you, good art will draw people in with like oh that's cool and then oh that's heavy and then oh that's I want, I need to learn more about that. You know, that, that's kind of like the, the three step process that I hope the work can conjure up. Um, and, right. uh, yeah, it, it, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it's an experiment. It's a process of experimentation and trying to find styles and techniques that are new and get people's attention and get them connected to the ideas. Yeah. Well, you know, Ethan, I think that's a, a perfect moment to kind of bring the ship into port, and it, it's <laughs> been a it's been a real pleasure talking with you. I think this is a great conversation about so many different topics, from you know <laughs> the the artwork itself to the construction of it, and, and even into you know fisheries management and so much so many things. So, um, you know, real pleasure to have you on the show, and, and hope to keep this keep this relationship open, and and you know talk more in the future. Hey, thanks, Zachariah. It's, it's been really fun. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Ethan, have an awesome day and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. 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 Thank you guys for tuning into this episode of Beyond the Buoy. It was a real pleasure having Ethan on the show today to talk about fisheries management, how we got started in art, as well as how he's garnered the support of guys like Jack Johnson. So if you want to learn more about Ethan, you can head on over to our show notes, Beyond the Buoy podcast dot com slash Ethan Estes. That's going to give you all the information on Ethan, as well as some links and some videos about who he is as a person. Um, if you want to learn more about Beyond the Buoy, head on over to our website, beyondthebuoypodcast.com. And also, we have some t-shirts. We have some official Beyond the Buoy merchandise that will be going live this week. And it's the week of June 8th. So if you're listening to this prior to June 8th, um, just know we're always going to have some shirts in stock, and if not, there'll be more soon. So I hope you guys consider supporting the show. It would mean a lot to me as well as everyone else who's been on the show, and it would get more guests on it as well and just keep this thing rolling, which I'm super stoked to be a part of and have having started it and, and seeing where it's gone from the first episode to where we are now. It's really cool to see all the support and making all the friends that I've made through this. So just want to say thank you. The shirts are very comfortable, or, or wicked comfortable, I should say, being from Rhode Island. They're printed in Rhode Island at Fresh Mode Screen Printing, which is right down the street from me. My friend Jake is the owner, does incredible work. So if you're looking to have some shirts printed up and you're in the New England or Rhode Island area, 
hit up Jake at Fresh Mode and he will help you out. Just let him know that I sent you and I'm sure he'll uh, be able to help you out on something. So uh, with that, as always, work hard, do good, and be incredible. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next one.